This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in his power and love even now as you listen. Open your Bibles this morning to Acts, Acts chapter, we're going to look at parts of chapter 7 and 8 this morning as we continue with our study of Acts. And we're talking about the fact today that, that God, as Romans 8.28 said, is, is causing all things to work together for uh, good, which is important to remember in a world like ours that is so broken. I was thinking about our graduates and just thinking about the world that they're going out into. And it's a world that is broken. We've seen multiple examples of that this week and even in the last 24 hours with what's happened in, in London uh, with another terrorist episode. And um, earlier in the week in Afghanistan, I think over 80 people were were killed uh, in, in another terrorist incident, which you didn't hear as much about. We tend to, in our Western media, uh, just like last week, we heard, so much, we heard so much more about Manchester than we did about the, the Christians who were killed on the bus in Egypt. Our media tends to cover uh, things that happen in Western Europe and the United States so much more. But I want you to know, lives are equally precious to our God everywhere. <laughs> in the world. But you know, I was thinking um, last night I was, as the news was filtering in about what was happening in London, God's people are tempted to experience all kinds of different emotions in a world like the one that we're living in. But one of the emotions that we're really tempted to fear is, is uh, to feel is, is fear, which is of course exactly what uh, terrorism is designed to do. It's it meant to instill uh, fear, to instill terror. And I was, I was thinking um, last night just about uh, a passage of scripture, and you don't have to turn there, but I want to read it um, before we get to our text this morning. But it's Psalm 91 verse 5 where the word of God says of, of believers, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. Our future as believers is secure. <laughs> and so therefore, you know, we don't have to live in terror of anything. Our future is taken care of. It's not in doubt. It's totally secure. And therefore, even in a broken world like this, we don't have to live in fear. We don't have to live in terror. And, and what the knowledge of that does is, is that it frees us to, to love people instead of just fearing people because we're called to love the broken world that we're, we're living in. That's part of the call of our graduates as well. You're, you're being sent out as agents of love and healing in our world. And so we, we need to just just ponder things like this in a world like the one that we're living in. And that goes along with our text today because our text today shows the, the brokenness of the world. It shows the evil that we see in the world and it also shows how God can take even those things and turn them into good. 
I'm not going to read every verse that we're going to cover this morning, but I do want to read uh, in Acts chapter 8, and we're going to look at the first four verses there, which give us a classic example of how God takes something that was really bad, really evil, and he's going to turn that around for the good of his church and the glory of his name. Let's look beginning of chapter 8. It says, And Saul approved of his execution, speaking of the, the martyrdom of Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. It was awful. It was violent. It was evil. And it says they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Father, we see in, in your word today how you took something that was evil, the persecution of your church, and you turned that into something beautiful as the, the scattering of the church resulted in the spread of the gospel and the expansion of the church. And you are constantly doing things like that, turning things that the enemy intended for evil and, and turning them into good. And, and you do that in our lives as well. And Father, we want to, to pray for those who um, were impacted in, in London in just the, the past 24 hours, those who were, were uh, impacted in Afghanistan earlier in, in the week. And Lord, the world is broken. It is fallen. It is evil. But you have called us to live not in terror, not in fear, but to live boldly and to love boldly for you with the knowledge that our future is certain and that you are taking even what the enemy means for evil and you are using it for good, the good of your church, the glory of your name, and we see a great example of that in our passage today. So speak to our hearts about these things now. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Dr. Timothy George is dean of the Beeson School of Divinity down at Sanford University in Alabama. And he did his PhD at Harvard. And he, he tells about a time when he was uh, at Harvard when... Dr. Gardner Taylor, who was an African-American pastor in New York City for many years, came and did a special series of lectures there. And Dr. Taylor told about an experience that happened when he was a, a young preacher in a rural part of Louisiana. He was preaching one night in this little country church, and there was just one light bulb hanging down from the ceiling, and then the one bulb flickered and went out, leaving the congregation in the dark. And Dr. Taylor at that point was you know, a young pastor and, and so he's fumbling around, he couldn't see his notes and he really didn't know what to say and a few awkward moments passed 
And one of the older deacons howled out from him, from the congregation, from the darkness. He said, preach on, preacher. We can still see Jesus in the dark. And Dr. George, in reflecting on those words, says this. He says, sometimes that's the only time we can see him in the dark. And the good news of the gospel is that whether we can see him in the dark or not, he can see us in the dark. During your darkest hour, God sees you. He knows you. He loves you. And not only that, but God in his love and in his sovereignty can take even our darkest times and, and turn them into light. He can take things that the enemy intended for evil and use them for good. We saw an example of this last week when we talked about Joseph in Genesis chapter 50 when, when Joseph's brothers come back. The very brothers that had sold him into slavery in Egypt and they come back and Joseph says to them, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And God is doing things like that in our lives. He takes even sometimes those darkest times and he can, he can turn those things and use them for our good and for his glory. And we see a classic example of that in this passage. Because what we're going to see is that the persecution of the early church in Jerusalem actually uh, is used by God to result in the spread of the gospel. So let's set the stage here of what's uh, going on. Last week... We were in chapter 5 and we saw that the apostles were arrested and brought before the council, the Sanhedrin. And they were beaten, they were threatened. The religious leaders said, we don't want you to preach, you are not to preach about Jesus anymore. And they responded by saying, we must obey God rather than men. And they kept right on preaching the gospel. And so you know it's just a matter of time before the persecution is going to break out again. And it does. In chapter 6, a man named Stephen, one of the first deacons, is arrested. And Stephen is brought before the council. And Stephen, in chapter 7 of Acts, preaches this amazing sermon, which is sort of like a jet tour of the entire Old Testament. And when Stephen gets to the prophets, he says... In, uh, and we'll pick it up in chapter 7 and verses 52 and 53. Stephen says to these religious leaders, he says, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they kill those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. At this point, Violence breaks out, and we pick it up beginning in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened, and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. 
Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Now, notice the contrast here between Stephen and the man who is being murdered and the ones who are doing, doing the murdering. Because the people who are murdering him are behaving like animals, I mean, it says they're, they're, they were literally just uh, na- gnashing their teeth. And they, they, they literally cupped their, their hands over their ears so that they would not be able to hear what Stephen was saying because they could not handle the truth of what he was saying. They couldn't handle the message, and so they murdered the messenger. But they're just crazed in their rage. Stephen, on the other hand, is totally calm. Even as he's being stoned, he's serene, he's tranquil, he's at peace. He's asking God to forgive the people who are doing this to him. And that's because all the while, Stephen has his eyes on Jesus. And that's what we have to do. When we're going through the darkest hour, when we're going through pain or trial or difficulty or persecution, keep your eye on Jesus. Dr. Adrian Rogers was pastor of of Bellevue Baptist Church in Memphis for many years, two-time president of the Southern Baptist Convention. But when he and his wife Joyce were in their first church, they went through probably the most one of the most tragic things that any couple can go through when their baby died of SIDS, sudden infant death syndrome. And it happened on Mother's Day of all days. Joyce went into the baby's room to just check on him and went to the crib there to find their baby without life. And she writes about this experience, this dark, dark experience. And she talks about the fact that later on that day, she and Adrian were driving back to their hometown so that they could be with their parents. And this young couple who was just overcome with with grief and darkness, they began to think of songs that they could sing together. And the Holy Spirit brought to their mind the song, What a Friend We Have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. And they said that even in that that incredibly dark hour, they could so strongly sense the presence of Jesus with them in that car, seeing them, caring for them, loving them. And Joyce Rogers writes about the darkness of that experience and she says, Adrian and I were molded and fashioned on the anvil of a great loss. We cast ourselves on the Lord in a way we had never done before. 
Jesus became a greater, the greater focus of our lives, and we began to realize more than ever his total sufficiency. And you see, what God did in their lives was going to impact many, many other lives. And that was the case here. Because what happens to Stephen and, and what happens to these believers as they're persecuting, as they're persecuted, is actually going to impact lots and lots of other lives for good. Now, now notice here that almost buried within this little section at the end of chapter 7 in verse 58 that Luke says this. It's almost a parenthetical comment. He says, then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And here it is. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. We're going to talk about him much more next week in chapter 9. Let's move on to, to chapter 8 here and look at these opening verses it says, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church. And entering house after house, he dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. This is a turning point in the history of the world. Chat, uh, verse four. Because up until this point, the Jesus movement has been located primarily in Jerusalem. Now, on the day of Pentecost, we know that pilgrims were in Jerusalem and they were able to hear the gospel and they went back to the countries where they were from. So no doubt they were out there spreading the word. But primarily at this point, it's the center is Jerusalem. What the persecution of the church results in is that these thousands of believers are kicked out of Jerusalem, which was horrible and, and, and evil. But what does that result in? The scattering of the church results in the spread of the gospel. Because as these believers move out from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, what are they doing as they're scattered? They're scattering the word of God. They're scattering that seed of the gospel, which is going to be brought to life in those regions. And see, that's the plan in Acts, right? Acts 1.8 gives us the outline. Jesus says, you will be my witnesses where? In Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, here in verse 4, it's moving out from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria as part of the plan of God. You know, if the enemies of, of the gospel thought logically, they would stop persecuting believers <laughs> because it always backfires. God always takes it and instead of it stopping the gospel, it actually results in the spread of the gospel. In the 1940s, when the communists came to power in China, they destroyed churches. They killed 
Chinese believers. They killed missionaries. The, Western, the missionaries that remain were all kicked out of the country. And so the communists said, hey, we don't have to deal with these people anymore. What happened? Now in China, there may be more Christians than members of the Communist Party. Because the persecution that happened in the 1940s birthed an underground house church movement that became like a gospel wildfire that the communists could not contain. Seven or eight years ago, there was a country in North Africa where hundreds of missionaries were, were kicked out all within the space of about a year. And it was a great source of grief to me because I'd, I'd visited that country three different times on mission trips. But what happened? Just recently on my trip overseas, I, I got to hear a report about what was happening in this, in this country. And do you know what's happening seven or eight years down the road? What happened was that when these missionaries were kicked out of the country, they, you know, they had led people to Christ. But what happened when the missionaries were kicked out is that the people that they had led to Christ were forced to step up and take leadership roles. And so now the church is flourishing more than ever. See, the enemy can't win. He can't win. Satan can't win. Whatever he does just backfires because God's purpose in the spread of the gospel is, is unstoppable. Just like his purpose in our lives is unstoppable. And he's constantly doing things like this. He's, he's taking what was intended for evil and, and he turns that around and uses it for good. Now, we're gonna see an incredible personal example of this that happens at the end of chapter eight. Because one of the believers that was kicked out of Jerusalem was a man named Philip, again, one of the early deacons. And so we pick up Philip's story uh, beginning in the 26th verse of Acts 8. It says, Now the angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. <laughs> so God tells one of these, one of these uh, Christian refugees, <laughs> Philip, who's been kicked out of Jerusalem, God says to Philip, I want you to go down to Gaza. Now, Philip must have thought at that point, Lord, why do you want me to go to Gaza? I mean, this is like a, it's a desert place, as it says here. And God didn't tell Philip why he wanted him to go to Gaza. He just said, I want you to go to, go to Gaza. And that's, a lot of times, God doesn't, God doesn't tell us all the whys of why he wants us to do something. He just tells us to do it. And he calls us to obey even when we don't understand, even when we don't have all the information. You know, for our graduates, uh, this is a time in your life where you're thinking, what does my future hold? 
you know, what's, and sometimes we want a blueprint, right? We want to, what's the next 10 years of my life? But God doesn't give any of us a blueprint of the next 10 years or 20. What does God tell us to do? God says, walk with me. Walk with me day by day. He doesn't give us a blueprint. He says, walk with me, listen to me, obey me day by day, moment by moment, and I'll make your path straight. And so Philip couldn't understand why God wanted him to go to Gaza. But God had his reasons for wanting Philip in Gaza, and it becomes apparent what the reasons were. Because Philip goes to Gaza, and what does he see? He sees this chariot, and inside the chariot is this Ethiopian man who's returning to his home, and he's part of the royal court in Ethiopia, person of great influence, and he's sitting there reading the Bible. <laughs> he's reading the prophet Isaiah. And so what happens? Verses 29 and following. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you're reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. And Philip said, I think I can do that. <laughs> and so, verses 32 and following. Now the passage of the, of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter. And like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation for his life was taken away from the earth? And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip says, I think I can tell you. Verse 35, then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. You say, why don't things like that happen to me? Why, why doesn't God give me opportunities like that? Let me ask you something. Are you looking for opportunities like that? Do you wake up each day looking for those kinds of opportunities? Praying for those kinds of opportunities? Are you ready for those opportunities if they present themselves? You know, it's remarkable how many doors God opens when we're walking closely with him and when we're open and eager to be a witness for him. It's incredible how many opportunities God does give us. Verses 36 and following. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. And the eunuch saw him no more, and he went on his way rejoicing. Now, 
what stands out here is that what's the first instinct of this new believer? What prevents me from being baptized? You see, throughout the book of Acts, what we see is that the normal pattern is that when people come to faith in Christ, the first thing that they do is that they are baptized. Baptism is the sign that a person has become a believer. And and we see this over and over again. Tonight, I'm going to talk about sort of the the middle part of chapter 8 about Philip's uh, preaching in Samaria. But we see there in Acts 8.12, speaking of the Samaritans, it says, When they believed Philip, as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. This is the pattern. People come to Christ, they get baptized as a witness, as a sign that they have come to faith in Jesus. And we should not be surprised by this because Jesus in the Great Commission commands us to do what? Matthew 28 and verse 19. Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Baptism is not a church tradition. Baptism is a biblical command. For believers. And so, on the day of Pentecost, when Peter gets up and he's preaching, what do we see that happened there in Acts 2 and verses 37 and following? Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ. Christ. Listen, friends, baptism is a big deal. If you are a follower of Jesus, you are commanded to be baptized. Not by Thurman Hayes, not by First Baptist Church, not by the Southern Baptist Convention, by Jesus Christ. It's not a tradition. (laughs) It is an ordinance of our faith, and that means that Jesus ordained it personally. He says, if you follow me, one of the first steps that you're to take as a believer is to be baptized. It it comes straight from, from Jesus. Now, listen, I understand that, you know, many of us, uh, we, we, we fear getting up in front of people I did. I mean, I I was afraid to even pray publicly at one point in my life, so I can definitely relate to that. Um, But, but, you know, it's it's daunting. We think you get get up in front of a congregation of of people, um, you know, and sometimes we can have a, just, you know, the enemy can give us all kinds of different fears. We can fear water or or, or whatever. But I want you to think about a couple of things. First of all, as a believer... Part of your walk with the Lord is learning to trust him. And learning to trust him when you step out of comfort zones in your life. And every time that you do that, every time that God tells you to take a step that may be uncomfortable or new, and you obey him, every time you do that, you grow 
that much more in your faith. I think about my senior day when I was, this, this day that happened right here in this church. And I had been asked on that day uh, by Trudy, I think she's here somewhere today, but Trudy asked me to share a word of testimony on that day, which for me was almost unthinkable. I mean, I was a kid who was afraid to pray publicly, let alone, you know, give a talk publicly. But, but she asked me to do it, and I was, I was so close to just calling her on Saturday night and back, backing out of that. And somehow, God gave me the grace to follow through with it. And it was uncomfortable, but you know, I went ahead and, and, and did it. And I'll never forget that after that service on senior day, my dad said to me, son, this is a great victory in your life. And it struck me at the time, but as I've thought about his comment and the, and the subsequent years, I realized how true that was. It was huge for me to step out there and to do something that I really didn't want to do, but I knew it was the right thing to do. And, 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 and like when you take steps like that, steps of obedience, the next steps that you take get easier. And, and God gives you more and more grace the more that you obey, okay? So that's one thing I would say to you about, you know, if, you're, if you have fear or intimidation about getting baptized, but you know it's the right thing, trust God. Trust God to give you what you need to follow through and obey him because he'll do it not only with baptism, he'll do it with anything else in your life. That's one thing. Another thing is to think about the cost that a lot of people around the world pay for getting baptized. Because around the world, okay, as it was in the early church, baptism is the sign that you are serious about following Jesus. Like for instance, if you're a Muslim who becomes a follower of Jesus, let me tell you when things get real serious, when you get baptized. And so I heard just this week of a teenage girl in a Muslim country, and she came to get baptized, and the people who were participating in that looked over, and they saw on the floor some beat up luggage. And they asked, what, what's this, what's this luggage? It was all of her belongings that she had packed up because there was no going home. She no longer had, a, had parents or a family to go home to. She was disowned. But it meant that much to her to obey Jesus because she loved Jesus. And she was counting the cost. And she was obeying him by following through with believer's baptism. Romans chapter 6 and verse 4 says, We were therefore buried with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ 
was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. You see, baptism pictures the gospel. It pictures the fact that we are united to a Savior who was crucified, buried, and risen. And every time a person is baptized here, that is what is pictured. They are lowered beneath the water, burial, raised up to walk in newness of life because we are united to a Savior who was crucified, buried, and risen, and he gives us new life. The old is gone, it's buried, the new has come, it's new life. And nothing pictures that, like believer's baptism by immersion. And I've never had a person to come back to me after they were baptized and say, you know, that didn't mean a lot. I wish I wouldn't have had to go through that. No, every person is like, this is something that I, I, I will cherish for the rest of my life. And so if you're in the position of being a follower of Jesus and you haven't yet followed through with believer's baptism by immersion, obey the Lord. He'll give you what you need. I want to close with um, kind of a, a funny story about a baptism, but it, it, makes a, it makes a serious point. When I was in uh, an earlier church, the baptistry was, was not like ours. It was not very, uh, we have a nice baptistry. Um, but in that church, the steps of the baptistry were just these rickety old wooden steps that had been nailed into the baptistry. I, I don't know why. I mean, they just, they, they, I guess they just put sort of a hole there without steps. And so rather than having people jump in, you know, they had to construct some steps and attach them somehow. And so, you know, they, they had done that in sort of, a, sort of a makeshift way. And one day I was baptizing with our, our student pastor. And Ben was big guy, you know, he's like 6'5". And uh, I was already down in the water. And uh, so Ben stepped out on these old rickety steps. And the steps gave way. I mean, like, became detached. Like, came off. And um, so, and it was kind of, sort of an athletic move on his part because he managed to sort of hide it. He didn't fall. Uh, he he kind of like, I guess, sort of, you know, surfed the steps down to the bottom of the, you know, kind of like an escalator, you know, go, going down. And so, like, the congregation really didn't know what was going on. I knew what was going on. And uh, so Ben was able to kind of conceal it. I could not conceal my laughter, I don't think, because I was dying at this point. Um, but so, but we got through that little hitch, um, and not too many people knew about it. But then, as we were baptizing people, the steps came floating up <laughs> like driftwood. <laughs> and so I, I remember taking my hand and, you know, taking hold of the, taking the steps <laughs> and moving them out of the way. Uh, that can't happen here, I promise, okay, our, 
Our, our steps are part of the, part of the structure itself, okay? They're, they're, they're not going to come off. Um, so that can't happen, but, but what can happen is that you can take the step that you need to take. And for some of you today, that might be believer's baptism. We have a baptism coming up in just a few Sundays. We we're planning it for like the 25th of this month. Let us know. Okay, you can let us know today, anytime. Okay, just, just let us know. We'll sit, if you need to talk or whatever, we'll, we'll do all that. But it's coming up. That's the step some of you need to take. Maybe you need to step forward and say today, I want to be baptized as a believer. Some of you need to say, I want to follow Jesus Christ. Some of you need to say, I know I need a local church family and God's calling me to be a part of this one. But whatever the step is that you need to take, trust the Lord. Obey him today. You'll never regret it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. Thank you for the way that you're constantly at work in our lives and in our world. Give us the grace to take the steps of faith that we need to take and to follow you. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine, almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you want to spend time with them. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. I'd love to meet you and help you in your Christian journey. I would love to connect you to some other people who love the Lord and who would love you to come to one of our services. Be sure to speak to me before or after the service. Maybe you live outside our area. I'd love for you to write me. My email is pastor at fbcsuffolk.org. Tell me what God is doing in your life. If you have spiritual questions I can help you with, please let me know. We're on this journey together.